This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Tuesday, anger over delays in the release of reports on serious incidents in aged care, including violence, sexual assault and neglect. Oh, can't you hear that in my voice that I'm angry? So angry after reading this because we don't want the message massaged. We don't want a strategic narrative. We want data. And just how the threat of nuclear war is overshadowing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll have that exclusive report on aged care shortly. But first up today, Australians are increasingly feeling the strain as the cost of living increases. Some doctors and public health experts say when grocery prices rise, people often choose cheaper and less nutritious food. Those at increased risk include poorer and Indigenous Australians, with health effects ranging from obesity to diabetes and even cancer. Our reporter David Sparks is doing a series of stories on the rising cost of living. Today, he's looking at what the experts call food stress. In a world jam-packed with junk food, we're constantly told to keep up a healthy diet. But right now, fresh food is more expensive than ever. Yeah, definitely. Fruits and vegetables. I think, um, you know, in my weekly shop now, I'm paying more for things like cauliflowers, the sorts of vegetables we always have. Obviously, I've got two young kids and I want to make sure that they're eating healthily and, yeah, certainly I'm, I'm feeling it. But while the cost of fruit and veg and healthy protein goes up, junk food is still cheap. Yeah, look, it's definitely cheaper to buy unhealthy food, but, um, you know, obviously as a parent, I want to prioritise the healthy stuff, so at the moment I'm just having to pay more. Doctors know what happens during times like these. I am quite concerned that the rising price of healthy foods versus convenience foods is going to shift the balance of, uh, of diets and have a negative impact on the health of our community. Dr Ken Seng Lin is a GP in the western Sydney suburb of Mount Druitt. It's an area with many low-income households and they're the ones he's most worried about. And they may have to make choices based on their budget, which um, may not be ideal for their health. So typical examples are that we'll, we'll talk to patients about having two serves of fish per week plus five serves of fruit, uh, sorry, five serves of vegetables plus two serves of fruit per day. And this is, um, and this can be done uh, and it can still be done now, but it requires a lot more uh, attention to, to the type of food that you get. And it often requires care with preparation, whereas convenience foods are often quicker and can actually be cheaper than the healthy food options. Dr Ken Seng Lin says the consequences of a poor diet are serious and wide-ranging. The consequences of a poor diet are that there's higher rates of chronic illness and obesity, uh, especially over time, and this puts increases the rate of diabetes and heart disease, which are still, and this is referring to heart disease, the biggest killer in Australia, as well as the known link between poorer quality diets and cancers of pretty much every type. While rising costs are playing a big role in people's decisions, he says this is a long-term crisis driven by other factors too. He says poorer people generally have less spare time because of the nature of their work. 
it's actually even more complicated than just um, the plain upfront cost of the food. It also comes down to preparation time and time and uh, and uh, and convenience. So, one of the problems with outer suburbs is often that those who live in outer suburbs have to travel further to work and actually have less time. So, if you add together a number of factors, um, we have a recipe for disaster. Professor Sharon Friel is a public health expert at Australian National University with a focus on how inequality affects people's health. People's health will suffer with the rising cost of healthy food. Uh, because it one it puts it out of the the reach of uh, many households, so as the cost of living goes up, people's budget starts to get squeezed. One of the things that we know gets squeezed is uh, food uh, in our weekly household uh, budgeting, and so if healthy food starts to become more expensive compared to unhealthy food, we know that households shift to less healthy food. Professor Friel says the price of healthy food, like fruit and vegetables, is heavily affected by shocks in the supply chain, like fuel and fertiliser costs or natural disasters. But unhealthy food is highly processed, so it has a higher shelf life and is less affected. And the companies that make junk food are big, so they benefit from economies of scale and absorb price shocks more easily. But she says there are solutions. Lifting wages for society's poorest to keep pace with the cost of healthy food would be a good start. Then there are measures to bring those prices down, like subsidies for fruit and vegetables. But if nothing is done, the health consequences for our most vulnerable will be severe. Because it's those households that are going to be most affected by this widening difference in price between unhealthy and healthy foodstuffs. That's public health expert Professor Sharon Friel ending that report from David Sparks. Well, if the cost of living is soaring in towns and cities, what about remote Indigenous communities? In some Aboriginal communities, the cost of basic household items has reached new heights. Carly Williams takes a look. Grocery shopping is usually a mundane task, but recently it's been a hair-raising experience for Mamu woman Diane Temple. And I take my elderly friend shopping. She likes her vegetables and every week they're just sky high. They got, you know, like we went to one place and the cauliflower was like $4 a kilo and then we went to another one and it was $8. Diane Temple lives on the Gold Coast and buying simple items that are usually affordable is becoming hard. We buy bully beef, oh, what do you call it, corn meat, tins of corn meat, and it's gone up $2 in a fortnight, a tin. And my daughters and I have found the rice is coming and it's got weevils in it. Further north in the Aboriginal community of Yarrabah, 45 minutes drive from Cairns, residents are also battling the rising cost of living. Dr Joy Linton is the GP on the ground. It's distressing. I think the costs are expensive anyway, especially to buy things locally here in Yarrabah itself. I'm worried that, that people will cut corners with healthy eating it can cost $2.95 for one litre of milk in Yarrabah. You can usually get the same at a Sydney supermarket for about $1.35. And fresh food? The margins can be even higher. The supermarket in the community is under new management and yet to reopen, but the owner has promised to try and stock more fresh fruit and vegetables and healthy pre-packed meals. Well, we've got a very high prevalence of diabetes. A lot of people are overweight or in the obese range. 
Gumbungya woman June Rima is Deputy CEO at the First Peoples Disability Network. Most people living on a disability are on a fixed income and particularly our mob, you know, they don't normally have home ownership so they've got rental. With the rising, you know, cost of living, it really affects people, all people with disability. But more importantly, our mob's living with disability because they already come from a disadvantaged state. Particularly in rural and remote areas, June Rima says people are almost unable to eat at all. You know, it's cheaper to buy a can of Coke in a very remote region than a bottle of water. So we've already got these high costs. So then, you know, add the burden, access to fresh fruit and vegetables, which we know, you know, is really good for all diets. But, you know, they have to choose between, you know, fresh vegetables or buying their medication at times. You choose between eating half the time or surviving. So what can be done in the way of solutions? The government has increased the ageing and disability pension by $20 a fortnight. But with the raging costs of fuel and natural disasters across the country causing hardships, June Rima says that's not quite enough. A lot of education still needs to be done in that arena. So I know, you know, Food Bank are now currently, you know, supplying over a million meals a week to families on the poverty line. And, you know, our people with disability don't always have access to even that because there's not that networking or knowledge about how can you access, you know, a fresh box of fruit and vegetables. Mamu woman Diane Temple says prices at the shops are bad enough already. She just hopes it doesn't get any worse. We've got to start somewhere. Where do we start? The poor pensioners, you know, they gave them a $20 a fortnight rise and the cauliflower goes up $4 from one shop to the other. This is just not a little thing. It's a big thing. And the, I mean, we were warned two years ago, stock up because things are going to get scarce and dearer. And it's happening now. That's Gold Coast resident Diane Temple there. Carly Williams with that report. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. Aged care activists have reacted angrily to delays in the release of reports on serious incidents in aged care, including violence, sexual assault, neglect and unreasonable use of force. The Serious Incident Response Scheme, known as SIRS, was set up in the wake of the Aged Care Royal Commission to help reduce the abuse and neglect of elderly Australians. The first SIRS Insight report was released in May last year. But despite promises of regular updates, there has been nothing since. Documents obtained by the world today under Freedom of Information show public servants from the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission mired in delays. These Insight reports document some of the worst incidents in aged care, including rape, assault and neglect. They are at the very heart of the federal government's response to the Aged Care Royal Commission. The first Insight report released in May last year covered only six weeks, but the numbers were shocking, including 448 cases of neglect, almost 800 of unreasonable use of force, 149 of inappropriate sexual conduct and almost 200 unexplained deaths. The Serious Incident Response Scheme is administered by the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. The Commission promised that the eight-page report released in May last year would be the first in a series. 
but there has not been another one since. The World Today has obtained a series of emails between senior staff at the Commission. On June 28th last year, Commissioner Janet Anderson sends an email to senior members of her team complaining she has not been updated on the next Insight report. I have been asking to see an outline of the second Insight report for over two weeks. This begins months of delays and debate among the bureaucrats. Much of it centres on the layout and the wording of the document. In July, an advisory council is consulted. Senior staff are then focused on other projects and return to working on the report in October. On the 21st of November, Commissioner Janet Anderson sends a message to two of her senior staff. This really has been a laborious writing task, hasn't it? I'm not entirely sure why it has proven to be so difficult, but the successive drafts I have received have never convincingly landed in the right place and have required degrees of reworking. Perhaps all of us need to further develop our skills in this sort of reflective commentary. In any event, I really hope we're getting close to the final version of this because I'm not really in a position to give it much more time. Thanks, Janet. But the process continues. Three days later, a senior staff member emails Janet Anderson about even more changes. Janet, I have reviewed this draft and offer some comments. The content from page four is good and reads well. I also like the messaging around learnings towards the end. I am happy to have a go, but it might be too much of major surgery at this late stage. Let me know. I'm happy to have a try on the flight back tonight. Thanks, Pam. On December 14th last year, we sent an email to the Commission asking when the next Insight report would be available, only to be told there was no estimated time of arrival. The Commission says some of the data has been included in its quarterly performance report, but the full Insight report is yet to be delivered. The delays are infuriating aged care activists. Dr Sarah Russell is the director of the advocacy group Aged Care Matters and is running as an independent in Flinders, the seat of departing Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt. They have been working on this document for six months, but it isn't the data they've been working on, it's the messaging in the document. Does it make you angry? Oh, can't you hear that in my voice that I'm angry? So angry after reading this because... We don't want the message massaged. We don't want a strategic narrative. We want data because we know that when we get data, we will have better outcomes for older people. As the delays continue, there's not a clear picture of the levels of abuse and neglect in aged care facilities. Beverly Baker is the national president of the Older Women's Network. She says behind the numbers are real people, elderly Australians at risk. It's as if the people who are already in these institutions and who are already being subject to a level of abuse that we were horrified at simply don't matter. I'm appalled. I'm absolutely appalled. But I guess, sadly, I'm not surprised. What's your message to the public servants who've been involved in this process? My message to the public servants is to look at the title of your job. You are public servants. You are there to serve the public. You are there to make sure that the public is served. That's Beverly Baker from the Older Women's Network. Australia has been called a holdout on emissions reduction by the UN Secretary-General, prompting a sharp rebuke from the federal government. This comes as a research paper from Microsoft and the University of London claims Australia's private sector is also falling behind on emissions reductions. 
The study found more than a third of large Australian organisations will miss their 2050 net zero targets. John Daly reports. A holdout. The head of the United Nations takes aim at Australia's effort to reduce emissions. In a speech to a sustainability summit, Secretary-General Antonio Guterres singled out Australia and developed economies of the G20, warning them to not let the war in Ukraine undo efforts to move away from fossil fuels. If you want to stop global warming, we need to go to the source, the G20. The developed and emerging economies of the G20 account for 80% of all global emissions. A growing number of G20 developed economies have announced meaningful emissions reductions by 2030 with a handful of old adults such as Australia. The public criticism of Australia's climate commitments prompted a pretty swift rebuke from federal ministers like Paul Fletcher and from the likes of Senator Matt Canavan on Sky News. Well, I think the United Nations should read the room. Uh, I mean, have they been asleep and not seeing what's happening in Europe right now? Uh, I don't want to end up like Europe. Mm. Uh, Europe has got themselves into an absolute vulnerable mess because they failed to develop their own fossil fuels, their own resources, become reliant on Russia in a naive pursuit to get to some kind of net zero emissions. The ABC has contacted Emissions Reductions Minister Angus Taylor for comment. He'll be in the Queensland city of Gladstone today announcing $50 million of funding to fast-track seven major gas projects across the country. The UN Secretary-General's swipe at Australia's climate policy comes as software giant Microsoft and the University of London release an emissions report card on big business in Australia. Brett Shoemaker, Sustainability Director of Microsoft Australia, says 34% of big Australian organisations will miss their 2050 net zero targets. Australian organisations, they understand the urgency of the climate crisis. I think between the floods and the bushfires, we're, we're on the front lines of it. But what the research shows is that many are struggling to transition with more sustainable ways of operating. And the driver of that is what we characterise as a delivery deficit. So three-quarters of large Australian organisations have net zero targets by 2050, but over a third of them are uh, on track to miss them at their current pace. The report draws its conclusions from surveys of nearly 700 Australian business leaders and thousands of full-time employees. It identifies a big gap between emissions reduction commitments and actual progress. Brett Shoemaker says there are some key reasons big businesses are falling behind. Three clear reasons that came through as part of the research. One was a limited insight. So only half of organizations are actually investing in the tools to enable them to measure their carbon uh, emissions. The second is a a skill shortage. So over 40% lack the in-house skills to implement the strategies that they put in place. And the third area was access to technology. So 35% do not have access to the technology that they need to implement the, what's within the plans themselves. And there's also an issue with investment in technology, as Brett Shoemaker explains. So a little bit of an innovation gap, if you will. So while 80% of Australian business leaders believe that tech innovation is key to achieving net zero, only half are investing in the research and, and development for the tech that will that they require. And as a private sector, I believe we all have the opportunity to be uh, customers of, investors in, and donors to the solutions that we will ultimately require to reach net zero. 32% of business leaders also cite not having clear government guidance for action as a challenge. 
That report there from John Daly. Well, finally today, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine escalates, the threat of a nuclear war hangs over the conflict. While Russia and NATO both have nuclear weapons, Ukraine does not. Ukraine is continuing its calls for Western allies to implement a no-fly zone, but the US and its NATO partners are refusing. So how powerful is the nuclear deterrent? Jeremy Garlick is Associate Professor of International Relations at the Prague University of Economics and Business. Yeah, that's a very good question because the, if we go back in time, I mean, Ukraine in uh, 1994, when it separated from the Soviet Union, actually had a lot of nuclear weapons on its territory. And as part of the Budapest Memorandum, which was signed in 1994, uh, it denuclearized that Ukraine would destroy all nuclear weapons on its territory in return for, you know, respect for its sovereignty. And so Ukraine was a denu- is a denuclearized country. So with Russia invading Ukraine, I mean, Russia obviously is a nuclear power. Ukraine is not a nuclear power. So we do not have a nuclear confrontation there. The question is that if NATO comes in, then NATO is, is a nuclear or the US is a nuclear power. Other countries in NATO have nuclear weapons. So if, if NATO gets involved in any way, that immediately escalates the whole situation to a nuclear standoff, and that becomes very dangerous. This is where you know, NATO and the U.S. have to make very careful calculations about how far they can push, how much pressure they can put on Putin. On Ukraine's decision to denuclearize, in retrospect, was that a bad decision? I don't think they had much choice. I mean, it, it was. I, I guess it does look like a bad decision from today's perspective. But um, the thing was that they, the, the the weapons were actually Russian weapons on Ukraine's territory, and Russia had the nuclear codes. Um, and I suppose Ukraine could have tried to operate those weapons, but of course, you know, it would have immediately created very bad relations with Russia and tensions with Russia. So I, I suppose they really didn't have much choice. And Signing off on the on the memorandum, they guess they thought that guaranteed their their position as an independent state, and Russia had signed the document. So, I, I suppose that was the, the the only choice at the time. Listening to to what Vladimir Putin has been saying, what do you think has been the most revealing language that gives a clue as to his boundaries or, or where he's prepared to go uh, with the nuclear option? Were he to to take that step, his his rhetoric all along and. It's all about NATO, you know, as far as he's concerned. It's all about not having NATO on his doorstep. And the, the, the threat in his mind of NATO, you know, coming in and taking Ukraine as a, as a, a NATO member and then, uh, you know, having a NATO country right on his border was just too much for him to, to stand. I mean, whether that's the whole story, I, I sort of uh, have a feeling that there's, there's more to it than that. There's questions of the Soviet Union and the, the past. And, and I think there's also this issue of, reviving Russia's, uh, you know, national pride and also regarding Ukraine as being part of Russia. He's repeatedly said that as well. What do you think is is the biggest oversimplification or misconception in the current coverage and analysis of this conflict in Ukraine when it comes to the, the nuclear element? For me, the big concern is that you know, this has the potential to escalate very rapidly. And, you, you know, we're, we're then facing World War Three. I mean, if this is I think what's not being talked about, and this is the, the issue that's in the background, that the calculation about what you do or don't do to, to alleviate the crisis is, is a very, very difficult one. And, you know, with Putin 
he can't really just pull out now because he would lose a lot of face. He would lose a lot of face in Russia. He would, he would, you know, it would humiliate him, right? So how do you de-escalate the situation, you know, solving the situation with, without making him lose face? The Ukrainians have been pushing very hard for the West to become involved in a no-fly zone over Ukraine. The West has been reluctant to do that. Is that because of concerns over conventional retaliation from Russia or is the, the nuclear question sitting above that as well? I, I think the nuclear question is sitting above that as well. And then I, I'd have to mention also that just beyond the nuclear weapons, I mean, we just saw... Uh, I believe it was yesterday that the Russians admitted to using for the first, this is the first time they've ever been used in conflict, hypersonic missiles. They claim to have used two hypersonic missiles to destroy targets in Ukraine. These are very high speed missiles that can fly you know, up to 10 times the speed of sound and they're very difficult. They can even change direction in the air and you know, and, and they're very difficult to defend against. This is a, and this is an absolutely brand new technology. It's the first time we see it being used in, in a war. There's, there's other levels of it, but I think that yeah, the nuclear question does hover there in the background. It's Jeremy Garlick there, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Prague University of Economics and Business. Well, that's all from the World Today team for this Tuesday. Join us again at the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Right now, more and more people are contracting COVID as another wave of infection sweeps the nation, driven by the Omicron subvariant BA2. Today, epidemiologist Professor Tony Blakely on how worried we should be and the need to prepare for a more dangerous variant that could be on its way. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.